good morning uh, to everybody who's listening to this podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming on and listening. Today, I have um, Martin Ziegler, who is the Chief Sports Correspondent of The Times. Martin, hello. Thank you for your time. Um, good to speak to you. Yeah, good to, good to come on this podcast. Um, obviously, seen a lot of your 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 um, blogs about um, Everton before. So, yeah, good to talk. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid I'm sort of sort of got quite a narrow focus when it comes to football, which is <laughs> almost exclusive, exclusively Everton Football Club. I think you have to blame that on four previous generations. And um, so I was indoctrinated, indoctrinated at birth. So um, forgive me for my narrow interest. But um, Martin, we uh, sort of decided that we would chat to each other I think as a response uh, to actually to what both Leeds and Burnley have been saying or suggesting in the media uh, would be their response to uh, whatever might or might not have happened between Everton and the Premier League with regards to profitability and sustainability. And I know some of your reporting and some of your comments and the comments of others that you may have commented on attracted a lot of attention to Evertonian. So um, not everybody listens to Twitter, obviously, uh, but also, so we, we're, hopefully we're attracting a wider audience to to your views. But also, I think those that uh, do use Twitter, just thought it would be an interesting opportunity for you to uh, explain further your thoughts, and then, um, you know, if necessary, I can counter them, and obviously you can uh, you can counter my views as well. Absolutely, sure. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, get, I'll tell you the um, the background. So uh, last week I. Um... I learned that um, Leeds and Burnley had sent, sent a joint letter to the Premier League um, the week before. Um, so this was like this was the before the penultimate weekend of the season, um, basically raising issues around Everton's um, losses. And I mean, I thought the most important thing was reserving the right to. Uh, to take legal action for damages um, for against both Everton and the Premier League, if there had been, and they believe that they have been, the clubs say they believe they have been, serious breaches of the profit and sustainability rules. Um, so I um, I spoke to Everton, got a a really good statement from their their head of communications, which I included in full. And um, I wrote the story and, uh, I mean, obviously it created sort of shockwaves in football, both with um, the fans of Everton and the fans of Leeds and, and Burnley. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it certainly did. Um, and so the, the view of both Burnley and Leeds is that uh, there are some irregularities in terms of uh, Everton's uh, inability to... Um, be compliant with profitability and sustainability rules, but also that the had there been any discussions that had taken place between the club, the club being Everton, and the Premier League itself, uh, which would obviously be private discussions, and one guesses between the board of Everton and, and the board of the Premier League, that that itself might be irregular, and therefore both Burnley and Leeds uh, would take the view that they had a case to claim damages uh, because of that irregularity. Is that, is, is that essentially the, the essence of the story? I don't think they're saying that the discussions were irregular necessarily. Yeah. 
Um, but I think they were. I mean, one of the things I've been saying is, as as the as shareholders, as one of the twenty each one of the twenty shareholders, that they had a right to see the documentation and the evidence and any decision making about it. Um, so uh, that was a, a sort of fairly significant thing. I don't think they were necessarily suggesting that the conversations have been irregular. Just the fact that. Um, they believe they could have been serious breaches and they, uh, you know, if if that had been the case, uh, clearly this was a, a sort of preemptive strike against, against relegation, whoever's going to get relegated, you know, at the time it could have been any one of the three when they sent the letter. Um, I think this was a, this was a sort of preemptive strike, wasn't it? To try and um, put down on paper that, if they had breached the rules and they believe that was unfair and then they reserve the right to take legal action um, if they got relegated, I guess. So it, it's it's something which has not happened previously in terms of the sort of profit and sustainability rules. There's never been any sort of action like this before. Unprecedented. I mean, the, the only thing which could possibly be connected to it was the old... Um, Sheffield United suing West Ham over after Carlos Tevez. Um, so in that situation, the Premier League fined West Ham for having a uh, playing um, uh, for signing Tevez, breaching third-party play rules, and um, Sheffield United took that to court because they thought that they should have been docked points. And ended up winning, I think it was twenty-five million pounds in a in a settlement. They settled actually out of court yeah. with this term. Yeah, I, I, I do I do remember that case. I, I think, uh, and I know you're you're obviously not here to defend Burnley or, or Leeds' actions, but just in the interest of uh, sort of roundness and a conversation, um, it's an interesting idea that uh, both Burnley and Leeds, as shareholders, or indeed any other club. Uh, feels as if they have a right to access the information uh, that's surrounding any decisions that the club or indeed the board makes. Because if one extends that that argument and say one extended that argument to the dispute that is currently going on, ongoing between Manchester City and the Premier League, and I know a lot of people are reluctant to talk about that for for good reason. Um, If in a similar set of circumstances or in a similar situation, and other shareholders said to the Premier League, well, come on, spill the beans, show us everything that is currently going on between yourselves and Manchester City. Uh, what, would there be a similar reaction? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Premier League won't show them and with <laughs> the evidence for, for that very reason. Um, but you, to me, what this highlights is the fact that, you know, the Manchester City investigations are going on for four years now. Yeah. Um, the Premier League shouldn't be doing these investigations. So, like the Premier League chief executive, basically, you know, he his salary is paid for by the clubs he's investigating. You know, Manchester City, Burnley, Leeds, Everton. They, they effectively, you know, they they pay him, they employ him, and he's investigating his employers. It, that it, that just shouldn't happen. Um, it, it's, think about the EFL. They have a now they have a completely independent unit. That, that investigates their FFP breaches. And um, 
and it, it's separate from the EFL, and that's that's what it should be for the Premier League, and it it causes real problems because you, you know you, there's transparency, there's sort of conflicts of interest. So yeah, I think it's a real issue. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm sort of fairly involved in the early stages of the fan led review and uh, the importance of having <clears throat> separation between those people that promote the game, those people that uh, uh, organise the game and those people that regulate the game. Um, and obviously within the Premier League, there isn't that separation. And then, of course, that, the not being that separation is then compounded by the fact that uh, that organisation is actually owned by the participants. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. so, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know the, the you know, the whether Everton have, have actually breached the rules or um, whether the Premier League are allowing their, their sort of the amount they've written off for sort of the decrease in the uh, in the value of the transfer market or or whatever or if you know have they agreed a, a sort of settlement with them or not um, and I think the lack of transparency is is one of the um, is one of the big issues here because nobody knows and. In, and they probably should know. Uh, yeah, I totally, totally, totally agree with you. Um, I mean, from, from my perspective, and, I, and obviously I've studied Everton's uh, finances to the nth degree uh, for, 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 for many, many years. Um, this situation whereby Everton might or might not have uh, gone o- over the, the limit um, has been coming for an awful long time. I mean, it's, this is not, uh, I think, to anybody that looks at this or studies it, this is this is not uh, new news. I mean, we you know, we've posted we posted uh, losses of more than hundred million pound bef- even before COVID uh, b- it became an issue. So this is something that has been uh, been building with Everton for for a period, and it's obviously, I mean, it's been built on the basis that. Uh, Fahad Mashiri, when he invested his money into the club, did so on the belief that the investment in players and wages would produce better results on the pitch, which would probably result in European football, which would then generate the income which supported the expenditure. Um, But obviously, that hasn't been the case. So we've had the expenditure and we've had the investment in players uh, to try and achieve the, the European goal or the European aim. Um, but obviously, on on the pitch, that's not that, that's not happened. So we carried the cost, but we haven't generated the income that was required um, to meet those costs. As a consequence, uh, we've made horrendous losses for a number of years. And although the loss situation will improve as you know people fall off the books, uh, as the amortisation costs reduce, as as some of the more expensive purchases uh, leave the club, some of which will do so this summer. Um, it is a situation that's been very apparent. And you know, my reading of the Premier League's rules are that the Premier League has pretty much full sight of the finances of every club in the sense that in the beginning of March of each year, every club has to provide a projection uh, for what's happening in that current year. And obviously the Premier League have the information from previous years. And if you're in a loss-making position, um, you also have to provide, you know, uh, um, suggestions as to uh, suggestions as to what your financial position is going to be 
uh, in the following year and possibly in, in the in the year thereafter. So it seems to me that all of this has been to anybody that was actually taking an interest or anybody that felt as if they should be uh, doing something about it. Uh, it's all, all been there. So it shouldn't, in the first instance, it shouldn't be a surprise that uh, Everton and the Premier League have had discussions. Uh, and those discussions, from my understanding, started in, in and around March t- uh, 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's no surprise at all that the um, the Premier League will have been in discussions with Everton about that. And, you know, I don't think that's any any sort of big secret. Um, but it's, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And the Premier League, they've never done a, um, they've never taken action against a club for breaches of financial rules so far. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if they do this time. I mean, it is... I think it's the biggest three-year losses of any English club since Manchester City in, back in sort of like 10, 10 years ago. I think that, but that was before they had the, the rules in place. So it's a sort of, quite an interesting test case. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously there's no denying that the, the public accounts show, you know, losses massively in excess of the 105 million uh, limit. Although obviously everybody understands that um, what's in the public accounts, so what's shown in the profit and loss account, isn't necessarily the figures that the Premier League used to calculate what the profitability and sustainability loss is, because you can add back stuff, for example, uh, women's football, youth football, uh, and community costs. Now, I don't imagine for one minute that those the the aggregates of of each of those costs are significant in the context of Everton's overall costs. So um, I think even if you strip those out, and I've I've tried to do those figures and I've tried to be generous uh, in terms of what Everton might have spent on youth, women's and uh, community community programmes, even when you strip those out, there's still an enormous difference between uh, the 105 million and where Everton might be. I mean, I, Generously, even if you said like it was seventy million pound that they'd spent on each of those three uh, categories, you still end up with an aggregate loss of around about three hundred million. So obviously, very, very much far out, outside of what you'd consider to be the normal limits. The, the saving grace for Everton has been uh, the provision that you can now look at what might have happened had COVID not existed, and you can sort of create. Uh, and it is creation. I mean, it is at the end of the day, these are not real figures. These are just somebody's assumption as to what might have happened had COVID not existed. So would we have kept Balassi till the end of his contract? Would we have kept uh, Sigurdsson uh, beyond last, beyond that last summer? You know, just as, just as, as two examples. Um, and if we hadn't, if we'd sold Balassi or if we'd sold another player, or if we've been able to sell some of the, you know, like a Tosin or whatever, um, in normal market conditions, what would the difference be between those accounts had those things happened and the real accounts because those real things didn't happen. But the reason why they didn't happen, the club is saying, is it's all down to COVID. It's, it's not due to the fact that nobody wanted to buy Tosin or that we couldn't sell Tosin for the price that we wanted to sell them at. It's mm-hmm. because market conditions were so great it was so so different 
um, that we couldn't possibly summon. So therefore, the difference between him having been sold and, and him not being sold is this. And therefore, yeah. that calculation can be taken out of whatever the aggregate loss situation is. Sure, sure. I mean, as you say, it's, uh, it's it, you know, it's, it's, it's what someone's calculated. But I, I'd be interested to know, did they also factor in um, for any players that have been signed, um, whether did they give them a lower, tra- you know, did it, because obviously the net transfer value would have been affected by that. Because if they got players cheaper than they would have done otherwise, is that has that has that been has that been factored in? Um, I guess we'll never know. But no, I, I, that's a that's a very good point. I mean, it's something I, I considered because the flip side is is that if um, market values are depressed, then the buyer benefits. If the seller doesn't benefit, then the, obviously the, the buyer benefits. And whether um, whether these calculations have gone to that degree or not uh, is a good point. And as you say. Possibly we'll never ever know unless that ultimately is a court case that where somebody has to describe and explain how they eventually reached uh, these figures. I personally I don't think there will be a court case, but that's probably the only way um, that you could get you could ever get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. What well, I mean, a lot of um, you know, a lot of people have said that this is sort of opportunist um, action from, from Burnley and Leeds to, you know, because they, they're trying to take advantage and get some sort of financial gain from, from relegation um, or at least put the pressure on the, on the Premier League. Um, it's, uh, you know, and, and I think certainly some fans of those clubs think, you know, not sure that they've done the right thing either. Um there's been a lot of anger from Everton fans, uh, you know, about toward, you know, just the fact that I've reported the story, um, you know, some sort of quite significant fans groups of, or at least one anyway, have been sort of quite insulting on social media, which it seems a bit weird to me because all I'm doing is reporting the, you know, what's actually happened and people sort of suggesting I'm in some way anti-Everton or, uh, which, you know, is, couldn't be further from the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I'm just reporting what's happened. I just, you know, the, I think there's this sort of tribalism around social media and football now is sort of any time you, you write about anything which might cause an issue for, for a football club and the fan, fans just jump on you. It's, um, it's very, uh, it's a very strange position to be in. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not, go- I'm not going to defend those people that we've, uh, unfairly criticised you for uh, for re- reporting the, the story um, as you see it as it, as it, it has been explained to you by other people, um, which is you know the very nature of your job, um, and I think people should recognise that. And uh, yeah, you know some criticisms I think I think are unfair. I think I think there's a I think there's a wider context uh, to it, Martin, which is actually not something that we were thinking or I was thinking and discussing, but it actually follows from what you've just said. There is a feeling uh, amongst Evertonians uh, and not just the big fan groups, but amongst, you know, just the ordinary match going fans, individuals uh, that the media and, you know, please, please comment as you see fit on this, that the media and certain media outlets, not necessarily the times, but certain media outlets, uh, do represent Everton unfairly and that there's a, 
a bias within the media generally, not necessarily specifically, but generally uh, towards, say, the top six clubs. Um, but there seems to be a, an unnatural sort of uh, bias against Everton uh, from ma- many media outlets and many broadcasting companies. I don't know if you want to comment on that or not. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I think there is it's probably um, inarguable that, the, 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 you know, the, the more glamorous clubs, if we put it that way, get more attention, don't they? I mean... Manchester, you know, anything happens at Manchester United, I mean, that that sort of that always gets top billing, doesn't it? Basically, um, and it's all you know, it's it's sort of kind of been like that throughout my life. As and I think it's, and I think it's, it can be certainly really. I can see how frustrating it is to fans if you think you're sort of your club's not being getting recognition. Um, but I. I I think I also think that there's a sort of it's not just Everton. I mean, I've had you know, I've taken lots of stick from Chelsea fans for after like reporting that the government had sort of you know um, having um, saying that there was big issues with the sale of Chelsea because Roman Abramovich was refusing to write off the loan. I've had stick from Newcastle fans for writing stories sort of about the the, the, the the Saudi takeover over about two years because of all the issues around the sort of piracy and human rights. I've had, I got I remember getting stick from Liverpool fans and writing the story about the, um, the fact that Liverpool had hacked into Manchester City's scouting database. Um, it, 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 I think it's just part of the course, really. People defend think they should defend their club at all costs, but... Uh, you know, I'm not. You know, I'm not criticised Everton at all. For um, I'm, I'm just stating the fact. And if you know, if if I think, I, I mean, all I would say is I don't. You know, I I I don't think clubs owners should be put them in a position a position of financial concern. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not the case with Mishiri. Maybe he, you know, the, the losses he's going to, you know, he will cover, and there's going to be no issue for the club. But you know, I do think, for example, with Burnley, I have sort of said before that issue, there are issues around leveraged um, takeovers because you know, it, you know, if if you take on a lot of debt to buy a club and things go wrong and you, um, you know, you, you fall out the Premier League and the sort of huge financial rewards suddenly disappear and you can't get back up there, then that's a worry for the club. And that's all I would say about finances and losses is that, um, you know, I, 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 I don't particularly have a view on, uh, uh, on, you know, whether high spending is, is necessarily good or bad, but I, I think it's a good thing for journalists to be watchful around whether, club owners are being responsible yeah and I, I, and I um, from a personal point of view uh, I would encourage and I would like to see far more uh, investigative uh, journalism into into the running of football clubs into the governance of football clubs um, I think because we've been in a a boom period in football where just more and more money has been made available to football clubs either through broadcasting revenue or through sponsorship revenue or indeed through um, 
you know, new forms of or new owners coming in, providing new capital. Um, but an awful lot of, uh, for want of a better word, sins or an awful lot of uh, perhaps not necessarily best practice has been hidden away because uh, as the volume of money increases and just you know, flushes through the system and through the clubs, an awful lot of this to the uh, possibly to the untrained eye um, is, is, is not apparent. And actually, I, you know, for, from my perspective, I think with the exception of one or two clubs, maybe, maybe, maybe three or four in the Premier League, um, most football clubs are more poorly run now than they were when uh, they had less money to spend. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting point of view. Um, I definitely the sort of uh, it, the there was a sort of boom period, wasn't there? <clears throat> Whether like clubs were sort of making money hand over fist, and most clubs were in profit, and the, you know everyone was trying to take them over, and even before COVID, actually, there was a, definitely been a sort of readjustment on that that front. Interesting to see what happens now in the future, though. I mean, if you see the sort of money that being paid for Chelsea, and some being some sort of to my mind, forecasts which are unrealistic about the, the the value of Premier League clubs going up ten times in the next ten years. I can't. I mean, I'd be amazed if that happens. <laughs> it's difficult to see how Chelsea could ever end up being worth what twenty twenty five or thirty billion pounds. <laughs> I know exactly. Um, unless, of course, the revenues increase by by such an amount that uh, that's the case. But then. The, the experience of revenues increasing in football is it's actually the players and the agents that get wealthier, not necessarily the shareholders of, of the football clubs themselves. Sure. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there are obviously certain exceptions. I mean, say like Manchester United, uh, you know, they pay a dividend don't they, every year to the shareholders who bought shares on the New York Stock Exchange. So, so that is generating money for for investors um, directly, but not not many clubs are like that. That's no, sure. exactly. I think actually that I, I think that's an interesting um, distinction for the future because even if you look, for example, at Burnley and if you look at Leeds, um, it's much more institutional money that's come into the game in recent years than it is just necessarily uh, either wealthy individuals or cranks like. I, I can call five Nigeria crank, even if uh, nobody else wants to. Um, people who, who who just have a, you know enough money to have an interest in in, in football, increasingly, and, and you know Liverpool is is, is a case of this. Um, they're being run as an institution would run the money. So there's you know proper budgets, there's proper uh, accounting for how much capital is needed to be put into the business in order to generate the return that they want, etc. And perhaps this is the way that football will go. And ultimately, perhaps this is the thing that will uh, generate shareholder value in the future, that uh, the, the costs associated with running a football club, so the costs associated with uh, employing players, um, will, that increase will not be as great as the increase in future revenues. So therefore, the, effectively, the margins within football improve to the benefits of shareholders. Um, so yeah, the, this idea that institutional money coming into the into the game and and possibly being run more professionally uh, might actually be the point whereby actually shareholders themselves 
actually start making uh, real money as against just uh, seeing inflation as a result of the, the amount of money that's poured in. Um, Martin, I know that your 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 time is relatively limited, so I um, appreciate what you've said so far, but um, maybe we can just wrap up in terms of uh, what you think is going to be the outcome in terms of Burnley, Leeds, Everton, uh, the Premier League. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and obviously Burnley and Leeds have like hired expensive legal represent, representatives. You might think they might get something out of it, but I, w- I would be quite surprised if it goes anywhere successfully legally. Um, just be- unless there's a sort of some sort of out of court settlement agreed. Um, but it's, it's quite it's just difficult to know, isn't it? Because you don't know what the Premier League, uh, you know, what their their sort of view is of the of the, whether the, there's been a breach of profit and sustainability or not, and. It, it's also a bit surprising in a way that they should, you know, whether they should have this thing about taking action against, against clubs. I mean, I, I guess it's possible, but, um, and as we saw, you know, as we saw from whatever the, the, the Sheffield United West Ham case, but um, it, yeah, it, I guess it's, I guess it's possible. Otherwise they wouldn't be paying a, a sort of expensive QC to, to represent them. So, but I would be surprised if um, if anything came out from the sort of legal action point of view. I mean, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be totally surprised if the Premier League had a, agreed a settlement of some kind um, for a a breach of the the rules w- with Everton. I would also not be surprised if they said they you know you know they they agreed they hadn't breached them. So I think either either of those things could still happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very much based on what the club has said, they believe that there hasn't been a breach and they believe they've complied completely with um, whatever requirements the Premier League uh, put to them. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, And, and you know, that was, that's possibly evidenced uh, in the public domain by the lack of transfer activity last summer uh, from Everton Football Club, whereby obviously they, they were very restricted in terms of uh, what they could buy. Um and you know, a couple of people have said that the cl- the club had to go to the Premier League on a case by case basis in terms of uh, recruitment. So that sort of suggests that they an agreement was in place, and as long as everything adhered to that agreement, then the possibility of them not complying seems less. I sure. suppose the really? argument with Burnley and Leeds is whether or not whatever that agreement was. Uh, was both fair and consistent with whatever's gone on in the past and indeed, you know, the, the rules as they're currently written. Sure. One thing I don't know, actually, is say, you know, there had been a, a small breach and Everton agreed not to make any transfers or, and, 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 and have a, um, whatever, maybe not a financial settlement, but as in like a transfer embargo or whatever, is does that is is does that just always remain sort of secret? Maybe it does. I don't know. I think you'd always argue if you if you were the football club that it must uh, remain secret uh, for for sort of commercial reasons. Yeah, you, but it doesn't in UEFA, for example. UEFA can, no, okay. UEFA can do a settlement and 
agree a sort of transfer embargo. And that's always that's always made public. So it's an interesting one with the Premier League. Yeah, I think part of this is, and, and I appreciate we've got to finish. Part of this is the Premier League's desire as the promoter uh, to always present the view that there's never there's never been a Premier League club that gets into financial difficulties. And we therefore, as promoter, we're not going to wash our, our dirty linen in public uh, <laughs> as against um, you know a proper regulatory approach, which would be uh, to publish. But there again, I suppose you could you could make the same argument about UEFA that they are both promoter and regulator as well. Yeah, absolutely, you could. You could. Yeah, I suppose the thing about the Premier League is that, you know, if there are if a club does get into financial difficulties, they don't have to deal with it usually because they're that's they get relegated and it's left to the EFL to pick up the pieces as we've seen with Reading and Derby and uh, um and Sheffield Wednesday who've all been um, they've all been penalized, haven't they, by the by the independent unit and the EFL FFP. Indeed. Fortunately, we didn't oblige on that count. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, I, I, I know, I know, I know you, your, your time is limited, so thank you so much for coming on and explaining your position. I hope the people that listen to this podcast, and, and there will be a fair number that do, um, hear what you say about you know, your role is to, is to report. Uh, and and you know, from, my, from my perspective, having spoken to you on previous occasions and having written and listened to what you've had to say on your podcasts and in the times. And I don't think there's a case to answer for in terms of bias for any club, let, let, let alone Everton. So let me say that to you. Um, and thank you for your time. Great stuff. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you, Martin.